Following Jesus' personal ministry among them, Nephite society crystallizes around the worship of Christ. This focus lasts for an extended period and then rapidly disintegrates. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you once again for joining me for Gospel Doctrine. It's so great to be here again with you. And I'm excited to begin what will be, hopefully, the first of many quickly done episodes to finish out the Book of Mormon and catch us up in the Doctrine and Covenants uh, as we rejoin the Come Follow Me curriculum. Today we're talking about 3 Nephi 27 through 4th Nephi. There could not be a happier people. As always, if you have a question you'd like to send to the program, a comment, please email me at gt.gospeldoctrine.com. So as these chapters begin, the disciples are going about, as it says, uh, preaching the gospel and baptizing people in Jesus' name. And this seems to be a time period in which all 12 disciples are in the same place at one time. So uh, first of all, I would, I would like to point out that we don't know how much time has elapsed. My guess is that it's been a significant amount of time. Uh, in fact, the, eventually every single soul, as we read in the Book of Mormon, was converted to the worship of Christ among both Nephites and Lamanites, but this didn't happen overnight. And we, if we, if we read again the chapters in Third Nephi where Jesus was personally manifesting to them, on that first day, there were something around 2,500 people. On the second day, we don't know how many, but they went out and got their friends, so we can guess maybe around 10,000 or something. So the entire uh, population, Nephites and Lamanites, would have been a much greater number. So the people who actually saw Jesus on those wonderful three days would have been uh, a very privileged minority among the Nephites. And the, the memory of that day would have carried them through a lot, uh, a lot of hard times and challenges. And we'll discuss exactly what that memory means to the Nephites a little bit later in the lesson. So right now in chapter 27, we read about this appearance of Jesus to his disciples. And they're, uh, as it says, that because they're uh, met, they're joined in his name and praying unto him, then there he is in the midst of them. In fact, it says, Jesus showed himself unto them for they were praying unto the Father in his name. And the reason they were pl- praying was at this time they were a little bit confused about what to call the church. Now, to us, I, I think the first blush, at least, is for us to be a little bit surprised that they would have this confusion because it seems obvious to us that they would, of course, name this the Church of Jesus Christ. However, consider that within the Book of Mormon itself, the faithful members of God's church had called it by different names. For example, uh, Alma, the elder, when he established the church, they just called it the Church of God. And to them at that time, they had described Jesus Christ that would come and Jehovah of the Old Testament as the same being. And so they didn't understand that they needed to be more specific than that. And so they called it the Church of God. And that was perfectly appropriate for them to do. So very interesting that now there should be a more specific name required for the name of the church. And and I'm going to talk a little bit about that, the name of God. Uh, If you remember, a few months ago I uh, I I made the announcement that I had written a post Our website, again, uh, is gospeltoctrine.com, and if you go to our main page, 
in the navigation at the top, there's a category of posts. And at present, there's only one post in that category. And this has to do with the name of Yahweh or Jehovah that Christ has in the Old Testament. And I made a number of speculations and observations about what that name might mean. And that's relevant to today's lesson because what Jesus is asking these disciples to do is make it plain that you have taken my name upon you. And if we look for an Old Testament analog or equivalent to this process, the closest thing we can find is the high priest. Uh, if, you, if you were to go back into the book of Exodus and read the description of the garments that are put upon Aaron before he goes into the temple, uh, one of those things is a headdress or a cap which has a rim across it, and it says holiness to the Lord as we read in the Bible, but what it really says is holiness to Yahweh or Jehovah. And the word for holiness is kodesh or chodesh to Yahweh. And that's a related word to kadosh, which we've discussed a number of times. It, it basically means something that is separated. And kadosh is used in, among other places, the sixth chapter of Isaiah. When Isaiah gets his prophetic calling, he has his theophany. And these angels, these seraphim, are in the presence of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And so the word they're using is kadosh. And God is separated. God is different. God is set apart from normal everyday uh, events, happenings. He's set apart from man. He's, he lives in a place that is set apart from earth. Everything about God is distinct, separate, and we could use the word holy, but that is what it means, is that it's set apart. And obviously it's set apart for more sacred uses. And this high priest's garb was similar. It marked the high priest as someone who is set apart. Holiness to the Lord. Now, if you were to read that post on gospeltoctrine.com, you would learn that the word Jehovah, uh, many people say, I am, right? That's the name of God. But what it really means is he is. And that word is actually has uh, a conjugation that sort of subtly changes the meaning. So rather than being is, it's a form of the verb to be, which is causal. And it means that he will cause to be. And that that's quite a significant difference if you think about it. In that context, and I'm not saying that this is how the ancient Israelites used the name of God, but in that context, I want you to just consider this for a minute. When you say Kodesh le Yahweh, or holiness to Jehovah, what you're really saying is, he will cause holiness to exist, or he will bring to pass, or, or bring about holiness. God will bring about the setting apart. And uh, as I mentioned in my, in my post, in my dissertation almost, on my essay on the, in the meaning of the name of God, when the subject or when the uh, indirect object of that causal relationship is missing, if we were to go to Moses 139 and learn that God's glory, his mission, his purpose is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life to man, well then, uh, that whenever that indirect object is missing, we can put, I think safely, we can put man or mankind, humankind, men and women, in that missing spot. So God will bring about the holiness or the setting apart of man. God will make men holy. That is what it means. Interestingly enough, it's fascinating. If you follow this line of logic, that's what it means to say holiness to the Lord. Holiness because, not because in English it means that, but because the Lord means he will bring it about. So he will bring about holiness unto man or unto mankind. Basically, when I say holiness to the Lord, I'm saying 
I'm, it's a prayer. I'm saying, God, make me holy. That's why it's so fascinating that God would choose this name when speaking to Moses, because it was such a generous name for him to pick. Every time the name is used, it's God extending his arm around us and saying to us, I can bring you to where I am. When we describe God as holy, when we describe him as merciful, when we describe him as being above the earth, set apart, what we're saying is, God, please make me holy, make me set apart, make me above the earth, make me merciful, and bring, or bring about mercy, bring to pass mercy unto me. And that is part of the magic. I, th- I think it's just verbal magic. It's just wonderful. It's miraculous almost about the name Jehovah, about the name Yahweh, depending on how you choose to pronounce it. So first of all, we have this Old Testament analog that holiness to the Lord means God will bring about holiness. Then we uh, further analyze the name Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, again, is a, it's a Latinization of the name Yehoshua from Old Testament Hebrew, which means, so Yasha is salvation and Jehovah is, as we've discussed, so he will bring about salvation is the name of, is what Jesus named name means. And Christ is a Latinization of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed. And anointed means set apart and chosen. So all already we have this analog between holiness to the Lord and Jesus Christ, which means he will bring about salvation and setting apart or uh, anointing. The name of Jesus Christ, if you interpret Jehovah, because Jehovah is a part of that name, If you interpret Jehovah to mean he will bring it about, what it means is he will bring about my setting apart and anointing. Basically, God will make me a king, a priest, or a queen, or a priestess, because those are the people that were set apart and anointed in ancient Israelite society. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see this over and over again. People aren't anointed unless they are anointed unto God to be a king or to be a priest to serve in the temple. Those are the two classes of anointings. And the prophet, the one chosen by God, someone with authority would provide this. So right here at the beginning, Jesus is saying to the disciples, I want you all to take upon yourselves my name. And now I don't know whether the full import of everything I'm saying uh, was immediately made plain to them uh, or whether I'm speculating. You know, this is sort of my guess as to what Jesus intended and Obviously, Jesus was aware that it had this potential meaning, but was he intending to communicate that to his disciples? Unknown, but I think it's fascinating to wonder. He was saying to them, take upon yourselves my name. And as context for that, you have in your memory, in your racial memory, your societal memory, the memory of this high priest, and in your recent memory, obviously, as a temple-going people, they would have had personal examples of, it, of this as well. The high priest going into the temple, wearing upon his forehead the words, Chodesh Yahweh, which is holiness to the Lord. God will bring about holiness. So I want you to take that name and put it on the church because it's a promise. It's not just the fact that when you talk about the church, you're letting people know you believe in me. When you use that name attached to the church, you are fulfilling or you are renewing this promise that God has made to man that God will redeem us. And the church is the vehicle whereby that will happen. And without that name, that promise is not being talked about. It's being neglected. In uh, August, I believe it was, of 2018, 
President Nelson made a big deal out about about this, and a lot of people were a little bit surprised uh, because not that not that people had a big problem with it, but people were surprised. I didn't realize this was such a big deal. I've called myself a Mormon. I've called this a Mormon the Mormon Church, and President Nelson at that time said God would not have us neglect His name. He made an ancient commandment that we would put his name on our church and that we would worship in his name. And we haven't been doing that. And a lot of people thought, you know what? He's right. We haven't. Oh my gosh. We have been neglecting the very name, the, the name of God on the very thing that he commanded us to mention it constantly. And that was fascinating. Uh, it was surprising and yet very profound. I think a lot of people immediately recognized how profound a prophetic announcement that was. And then he furthered that up or followed that up with uh, more, more talk about that in the following October conference. And it required a lot of work. It required a lot of dedication on the part of a lot of people. We had to change, for one thing, we had to change the name of our, our uh, church's website. And we had to provide new media and news guidelines for how the church would be mentioned. And people had to adjust. And remember, I think the hardest part was members adjusting to how they would call it in their own personal lives. Uh, and incidentally, a lot of people, I think, feel like they have to mention the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints all the time. Another ex totally acceptable name for the church that was given in that press release was the Restored Church of Jesus Christ, which I often choose to use uh, because I think, number one, it rolls more easily off the tongue, but number two... Uh, it's just fun to change it up. It's fun to not have to say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints over and over again. And obviously in that in those guidelines it says once you say it once, you can refer to it as the church. But it is important that we use the name of Jesus Christ when we refer to the church. I'm going to tell a little story about this. Uh, my a, a former bishop of mine, a dear friend, and his wife went on a mission to Southern California. And while there, it so happened that they were, I believe it was a zone meeting, but it was some sort of missionary gathering in a church building. And as they were participating in this gathering, a couple, a Chinese couple, walked in off the street and started asking questions about the church. And it so happened that there was a sister there. And uh, without going into too much detail on the story, this sister had suffered in China because she was a member of the church and she refused to renounce the name of Christ. She had gone through so much to be on her mission. And then President Nelson had made this an issue, this the name of uh, Jesus Christ on, at being always attached to the church, he'd made it an issue. And this couple had wanted to know something about Christ. And so that is what they had typed into their phone, into a search engine of some sort, maybe into the maps app on their phone, they had found the church building because they used the name of Jesus Christ to find it. Now, that would have been the case before or after President Nelson's announcement. So the point isn't that President Nelson made a change possible that brought these people to the church. The point is the name of Jesus Christ being attached to that building and being known to the world that it was attached to that building is what brought him in that day. And that missionary, that young missionary's willingness to dedicate herself in China. She was a native Chinese uh, missionary and had since emigrated to the United States and then uh, served a mission. And so her insistence and her refusal to, her insistence on following the name of Christ and refusal to deny him 
uh, led her to be where she was at that time when they, looking for Jesus Christ, came in. So the name of Christ had led them both there. And without that dedication and without that focus, that meeting would have been impossible. I thought it was such a profound story. It was such a perfect illustration of this point that we have to not only adopt that name, take it upon ourselves, but it has to be known to the world that we take it upon ourselves. So this is the point that Jesus is making. And like I said, he doesn't make explicit in this chapter why he why it's so important. He, he makes one point, which is if it's the name of a man, then you will call it by that man's name. But if you want it to be the church of God or my church, then you will have you must call it by my name. But he doesn't make all the deeper points that I'm making, which is this the fact that you put the name of Christ on your church is you showing that you have a commitment, you actually have a guarantee from God that he is going to use the church to make you holy, to set you apart, to bring you into anointed status if you will choose it. And uh, that's something, I think, truly eye-opening about this chapter. Now, as we've been analyzing Jesus's his request to the disciples, we've been ignoring, we've been focusing on the words Jesus Christ So he wants them to call it the Church of Jesus Christ. We've been focusing on the words Jesus Christ, but now let's focus on the word church. So interestingly enough, we find out in this chapter, uh, or I'm sorry, we find out later on in in 4th Nephi, but this is leading up to it, that eventually there were no Nephites, there were no Lamanites, there there were not any manner of ites, but they were all united in Christ. So I'm I'm going to once again make an Old Testament analog, which is, in the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes, and at Jesus' time, people knew, even though, though it was thousands of years, or many centuries more than a thousand years later, people knew what tribe they belonged to, what tribe of Israel. It was still an important part of their identity, because privileges were associated with what tribe, privileges in land, privileges in marriage, privileges in law, uh, and you had certain rights and privileges according to which tribe you belonged to. And in Nephite society now, it shows them leaving behind this tribal identity. That's what it means for them to become the church of Jesus Christ. It, it is that that is their primary identity rather than being uh, identified, associated with Nephites, Lamanites, uh, Zoramites. That, if you remember, we've talked a few times about the seven tribes of Lehi as opposed to or as contrasted with the 12 tribes of Israel. But they had a similar purpose, which was to uh, divide up their privileges, divide up the land, divide up to provide governmental power as well. So it was necessarily tribal, their society, until Jesus Christ came along and said, we have a better way. Let's take this tribal society and turn it into a church-based society where there are no manner of ites. And we learn later, and we'll, we'll read this, but they... They disintegrate into tribes again at some point in the future. But for now, what they've done is they have, Jesus has changed the question, right? If we're not ites, who are we? Jesus has said, whose are we? Rather than who are we, are we a a Nephite, a Lamanite, a Zoramite? Or are we belonging to someone else? So the question has gone in this chapter from who are we to whose are we? And obviously, when the church has upon it the name of Jesus or Jehovah, then we belong to Christ. And so, once again, if you were to read the first chapter of John, 
you will realize that John said this about this very thing about Jesus. He's and and this is I think subtle enough that this was not intentional on the part of whoever uh, on Mormon's part when he wrote this. Even though I believe that uh, Mormon and Moroni they had access to certain writings at at the very least uh, among Christ's old world disciples if not all of the scriptures and it, you know there's no reason why they shouldn't have having access to the uh, the three nephites um, there is significant evidence that there was some some interchange at least going in one direction from the old world to the new and however i don't believe this part was intentional but uh, here mormon is making the same point that john made in john chapter 1 which is that unto those who believed that Christ would give the power to be born of God. And this was John drawing a stark contrast. In that verse, John was drawing a contrast between the Jews as the way they, the way they calculated their privileges was by being able to trace their lineage to Abraham. And what John was saying was, those who believed in Christ, they were no longer born of Abraham, not as a man desires, not as man is born, not through natural means where uh, father and mother conceive and then through the power of flesh give birth to a child. To those who believed, Christ gave the power to all to be born spiritually of God. And therefore, rather than having to trace their privileges through another person, through a man, Abraham, to whom God made covenants, they could make their own covenants and have a direct line to God and be spiritually begotten of him. I encourage you to read that passage in John chapter 1 about how we can be spiritually born of God and not be naturally born of man. That was the power of Christ, and that was the change that he brought upon New Testament society. And so now here Christ is saying, when we call this church by my name, we're going to make a similar change here. You're going to be part of a voluntary organization. You're going to be spiritually begotten followers rather than naturally begotten followers of a tribe going to be spiritually begotten followers of God. You will all be one. You will all be kings and priests. You will have your, and queens and priestesses, you will have your own line of authority directly to God. As soon as you allow me to make you holy and take up my name upon you, then you have this promise that I will set you apart and anoint you. It's really fascinating just that that, that name, taking upon ourselves that name, would have such significance. Incidentally, in the old world, I don't believe this was a change they ever made a big deal out of. Uh, for a long time, the disciples called what they were doing, they called it the way. And if you search for that exact phrase in the New Testament, you'll find it shows up in a number of places describing Christianity, describing this new religion of following Jesus. And that very philosophy, that very religion actually changed because originally, especially before Peter's uh very influential vision, but even afterward, originally this was a, not considered to be a separate religion, but just a set of beliefs that would be piled on top of the Judaism that you already had. It wasn't meant to be a religion, but then they realized, well, yes, we, we really have established a separate religion, and we're allowing people in who aren't building on a foundation of Judaism. And that, those, those, that phrase, the way, became more and more laden with significance as time went on. But I don't know that they ever said, we're going to call this the Church of Jesus Christ. And I don't, at least I don't find uh, evidence of that in the New Testament. 
Now, there may be some historical document that points to the fact that they called themselves a church, but generally in the New Testament, when we read the word church, they're describing a regional set of saints that are gathering together, the church in Asia, the church in Rome, etc. And each of those churches was uh, was governed by a different leader who had been appointed by the apostles, and church meant a gathering of the saints. And so there was not a sense that the entire church or the entire movement had a name in the New Testament. So this is uh, what we, I guess you would call it an innovation beyond what the New Testament saints had been willing to receive. And uh, my further guess is that it took some time. It took several years between when Christ uh, had his visitation with the Nephites at the temple and when he gave the disciples this revelation. It wasn't until they had the wisdom and the need to ask the question, what should we call this movement of which we're a part? And you can't really ask that question until you actually have a movement. And when they were faithful enough and curious enough and humble enough to ask that question, then they could receive this greater light. Again, it seems like a simple thing, and yet, why did we have a modern prophet also making a big deal out of adopting that simple change? It's because it's not a simple thing. It's actually quite profound. It has a lot of deep meaning for us. It has to do with how the world sees us, um, among many other things. It has to do with how the world sees us and how we see ourselves. The name of Christ does for the church what that headdress did for the high priest. It marks us as someone who's ready to walk into his presence as you do symbolically when you enter the temple. Now, Conversely, when you take the Lord's name in vain, uh, we, and I talked about this when we discussed the Ten Commandments, but when you take the Lord's name in vain, the, the Hebrew word is actually to bear or to carry. And so a lot of times we think if you say the word God and you're not saying it in a holy conte- context, then that is what constitutes taking the Lord's name in vain. But uh, a, a more, I would say, Hebraic reading of that commandment would would be that to bear the Lord's name in vain means to say that you're doing something in God's name and yet have it be all about you. To say that you're working works of righteousness because you want to serve God and then actually be working works of wickedness. And so the the sin of taking the Lord's name in vain is actually the only one in the Ten Commandments which is unforgivable. It says in the book of Exodus that the Lord will not hold guiltless, or in other words, will not take away the guilt from him who takes his name or carries his name in vain. And, and if you think about it, uh, a religious leader who says, come, my followers, let's do these, this evil thing, has destroyed the faith of both his followers and anyone who observes, because now they are less capable or perhaps incapable of believing in a God who is good. And therefore, that, that person who has taken upon himself the name of God in vain has carried the name of God in vain, has murdered the faith of those around him. And that is why it's an unforgivable sin. So enough about that. Obviously, we could talk about uh, the need to have the name of Christ upon us for the entire time. But we want to move on to where in verses 13 and 14, we're still in uh, 3 Nephi chapter 27, Jesus says, he makes the equivalence between when I'm lifted up on the cross or when I was lifted up on the cross, I did that so that all men could be then presented to the Father. Again, this 
equivalence or this relationship between the resurrection and the judgment that is present throughout the Book of Mormon. So a lot of times in uh, modern doctrine and modern Latter-day Saint discussions, we talk about that resurrection is a free gift. And I think it's important to remember that resurrection is for the express purpose of us being brought back into the presence of God for judgment, right? So th these are simultaneous events, almost. And, or in my opinion, this is how I read the, the repeated mentions of resurrection and judgment in the Book of Mormon. And for support of that idea, you can read Alma chapter 33, verse 22. Christ shall bring about the, quote, the re resurrection that all men shall stand before him to be judged, end quote. So the point of the resurrection is that we have access to God's judgment. And, that, and that's not necessarily a heavy thing. Uh, the wicked obviously take the truth to be hard, but for many it will be the pleasing bar of God, which uh, is how Moroni describes it at the end of the Book of Mormon. One more, one more thing I want to mention here. Uh, Christ talks about the men being judged from the books that are written. And then he says in verse 26, all things are written by the Father. To me, that brings up a metaphysical point, and this is just my own philosophy. You may find it interesting, you may not, but I'm a, a computer scientist by training, by education. And when we in computer design talk about how to store a piece of data in the smallest space possible. Um, you might have heard of bits and bytes. You know, how many bits does it take to store that information? Can we streamline or can we make more efficient the storage of that data? Can we pack more pieces of data into a smaller structure so that we use less hard drive space, we use less bandwidth when we transfer it, etc.? So Obviously, this is taking the gospel and putting it in very uh, concrete terms, but bear with me. So let's say that God wanted to remember everything about you. What does God know about you? He knows not only who you are and what you have done in your life and what choices you've made, what you look like. He knows the clothes in your closet. He knows the history that he had with you before you came to this earth. He knows everything about the health problems that you have and the reasons for them. He knows the history and the current state of every particle in your body down to a subatomic level. So with that much data to store, where does it go? Where does God keep all that data? And this, is, this question is not in the Book of Mormon. It's just a question that I thought of. So that's why I'm taking a little digression here. Where does God store his memory? If his memory is literally every possible thing that you could know about every particle in the universe, the, and, and this is, again, a conjecture based on a philosophical idea, the smallest space you could store that much information in is the actual universe itself. And this, I believe, this is my personal opinion, that this is the reason why we learn in the scriptures that all time... Time does not exist to God. And in other words, the, the universe itself is the mind or the memory of God. God stores his memory in this four-dimensional uh, chunk of time-space or space-time that we know uh, as the universe. So it's not just that he has access to my office where I can store books and he can come and look at them and understand what all of the 
pages in each of my books are doing and what how many staples I have in my stapler. It's that he can also visit any time in the throughout the progression of what my office looks like for thousands of years. You know, it crumbles to dust and then it's rebuilt as part of another building or maybe it becomes a forest. And he has access to all of those as if it is one more book on his bookshelf. And not only that, but he has a mind such that it is possible for him to give full attention to each thing in that bit of memory or to, in other words, to each particle and each bit of energy in the universe for every moment of the universe's existence. So when Jesus says here in chapter 27 that all things are written unto the Father, what he means, in my opinion, is that God has as his memory the very thing that you experience. God experiences it with you, and he knows it from a, from a level that you could never experience it as a mortal. He knows it from every particle on up and from the largest possible perspective, from a universal perspective on down. And from the individual perspective, he understands our not only our pain, but the meaning behind it and the false, the lies that we tell ourselves about it. And not only does he understand those things, but he's constantly aware of them. And in fact, there is no moment in which he can forget them. So that's, that's why it says in the scriptures that it is impossible for us to comprehend the mind of God, mind of God because I imagine as I've been talking that you've thought, what is he even talking about? This is, this is blowing my mind. Why would, uh, why would this be important to understand? And I guess the reason is that I think the more closely we can understand our Father in heaven, the more we can love him and the more we can believe when he tells us that he loves us. So when Jesus says all things are written by the Father, what he's saying is the Father is constantly aware of every detail of everything there is to possibly know. And that is the mark of the Father's love and goodness. If Heavenly Father, if God himself were malevolent, right, there is no end to how destructive he could be. And in fact, all of us would have misery every moment of every day. So it, to me, it's a piece, a very strong piece of evidence that all thing, if all things are written by the Father, that means he knows all things. And that means he is good because the universe itself has the capacity for good. A God who is that powerful and who was not totally good, would have no capacity for good in the universe. He wouldn't care about it. And therefore, uh, it would have been our, our existence as if there had been no Savior. The fact that we can experience good, the, the fact that we can feel love, the fact that we can feel the Holy Ghost and, and know the forgiveness of God is proof that God is good. So uh, that's where I was going with that discussion. Now, in chapter 28, we have this interesting story about the disciples who choose to be translated, who come to be known in modern times as the three Nephites. They choose to be translated rather than to have the promise that one day they will be accepted into heaven. And Jesus makes it clear that they have chosen the greater blessing. Now, if we think about uh, what they actually chose, not only did they choose the greater blessing, but they chose the greater set of challenges. Uh, again, let's go back to Moses 139. God's work and glory is to bring to pass our immortality, our e eternal life. And therefore, what these three disciples had said to God in essence was, I want to make your work my work. I don't want to stop working until you stop working. And the other, what the other disciples, and it wasn't counted as wickedness unto them, but uh, it was 
basically a, a missed opportunity, you might say, uh, that that they wanted to die and rest. And at some point they wanted to stop working. They, they wanted, or they wanted to take on some other work. But the greatest focus of God's plan is here on earth, is during the mortal life, because this is the test. And what the three Nephites, what these disciples said to God was, I want to continue to be part of the test as long as the test is active. And I want to experience all the pain and trials and work and effort that is required to make this work go forward as quickly and as far as it can go. And God said, I recognize that not only are you obedient, but you have gone one step further and you have taken my priorities and made them your priorities, and therefore you will have greater blessings. And so uh, that's, that's the significance of what's happening in chapter 28. As President Nelson said in a youth fireside uh, that was a video made not too long ago, he's in a I believe it was the Joseph Smith home. In any case, he's seated around a table with a bunch of children, and one of them asks a question, and President Nelson's response was, the Lord loves effort. And what these disciples were saying, uh, in effect, was, I, wanna, I want to go from the state of being I'm in to the state of being in which God exists, which is to say, never-ending effort. I want to be saddled with the cares and the, and the priorities that God has forever quite a commitment that they made when you think about it. And obviously, God is going to reward that with greater blessings. Now, in chapters 29 and 30, these are short chapters. Mormon talks about the woes. I just want to point out one thing about these woes, and that is, well, a couple of things. But one, first, that that is how the book of Third Nephi, the action of the book of Third Nephi, at least, sort of began, was they have this this destruction, and then the voice of Christ is calling to all of them and saying, woe, woe unto, unto this people, unto that city that has been destroyed. And I'm not saying that the book of Third Nephi is itself a chiasmus, even though it st- sort of begins and ends in the same way. What I'm saying is that this is an interesting narrative arc that obviously Mormon is trying to draw a parallel between the time before the destruction of the or just at, I'm sorry, just after the destruction of the people of Third Nephi, and the destruction of his own time, he sees the seeds of this destruction, even in the blessedness of the time preceding the Book of Fourth Nephi, and that is because uh, pride. Anytime pride exists, it will eventually come out, and so we have to do the best we can to root it out. He wants the future Gentiles to know what behaviors to avoid to be worthy of the blessings in this book that he's writing, what would become known to us as the Book of Mormon. He's saying to us, to the future Gentiles, uh, look, if you want to earn every blessing that I've written about, then you have to avoid all of these behaviors. In other words, Mormon is talking in, in chapters 29 and 30, he's talking about holiness. He's talking about how to be set apart from the world and how to bring holiness unto the Lord. So first, and, and I'm grateful that our chapters were grouped the way they were, because first we have this discussion on taking upon us the name of Christ, and then we have Mormon talking about what kinds of things cause us to lose that holiness, that setting apart, uh, that special sacred status that we can take upon ourselves if we choose it. He's letting the Gentiles know you have a choice. You have a, a clear delineation between one and the other. And now that brings us to the wonderful book of 4th Nephi. 
and before we talk about fourth Nephi, I want to make you aware of what's called the Anna Karenina principle, right? This is uh, the the famous Russian writer Tolstoy wrote the book Anna Karenina, and he said in there that all happy families are alike, but each an unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. In other words, in order for success to happen, you have to get everything right. But failure can occur uh, because of uh, a number of different things going wrong. It's not just that people are going to fail in the same way. They're going to some are going to fail to be righteous in this way, and some are going to be fail to be righteous in this way, and they all lead to the same place. The reason I bring up the Anna Karenina principle is it's often used in drama. It's often used in fiction to say. All right, uh, a bunch of people who are getting everything right are totally boring to talk about because every and, and the underlying principle is everybody who's doing things right is they're they're all the same. But people who are flawed, people who are making mistakes, they're interesting to talk about because they're all making mistakes of different kinds. And uh, that's a that's a long way of me explaining why the book of Fourth Nephi is so short <laughs> because it's sad in a way that we don't spend much time talking about the great and extended righteousness of the people in 4th Nephi. But the truth is there's just not that much to say because they're all getting it right in the same way. So it does talk about what it takes to give this to get their society right. The first thing they all did is they repented and made covenants. The second thing is they're truly converted. This is right at the beginning of 4th Nephi. There's a list there. The third thing is they have all things in common. And this is uh, probably the most fragile of righteousness, uh, of attributes of righteousness in a society. We'll talk about that in a second. Fourth, they uh, provide service to each other, which includes healing and miracles, but also more mundane forms of compassionate service. Uh, fifth, they, they're all working and industrious to improve their world. So in spite of the fact that they're sharing their material goods, they are uh, having all things in common. Everyone is industrious. No one seeks to shirk what could be done to make the world a better place. And in today's world, and, and I am not uh, someone who decries capitalism, but capitalism is the best way that we've found to motivate people to be industrious because they're working for themselves. And when they're working for themselves and when they know that they own the fruits of their labor, they are liable to work harder. And when they're working for the common good, it is this has been tried in a number of different societies, and it never motivates people enough. Quite often because those who are managing the system are corrupt, but that is sort of a byproduct because uh, you have to be corrupt. You have absolute power over everyone's gains from all of their work, and so eventually the the potential for corruption is so great that it is irresistible. So. My question as we read 4th Nephi, one of my biggest questions is how could a society of people choose this sort of life dependably and stay motivated to work? Uh, it's a question without an answer, and I'm, I'm happy to receive your answers. I don't think, what I, what I should say is it's, it's a question without a perfect answer. But if you'd like to send me your, your thoughts on the topic, you can email the show and we'll read them next time. But the So the question is this, how is it that they could... Uh, consistently and reliably and, and in an extended fashion choose this sort of life where they had all things in common. Obviously, it's a more blessed form of existence for everyone. 
And nevertheless, it's so difficult for those who are self. It only takes one selfish person to sort of ruin and throw a wrench into the gears of this, uh, of this system, of this economic system. Finally, uh, so they were still, they were still industrious. Finally, they were multiplying. So they're marrying, they're having children, and they're teaching their children, they're raising their children to believe what they believe. They're passing along their values. And this part they did imperfectly. Uh, you might say that all the other virtues depend on this one. Because what happens is, and, and I know that it says the Book of Mormon, uh, Mormon several times, woe be unto the fourth generation after this generation. But I want to show you something. First of all, it, the fourth generation means that that's when the, the society has totally uh, devolved into something that is almost unrecognizable from this blessed existence in fourth Nephi. The first generation are those people who were there present to see Jesus Christ and those people who heard their voice in the immediate aftermath. That's the first generation. So you might think that those people, and that happened, you know, A.D. between 33, the year 33 and maybe 37. So you might think of those people as the first generation, and they had various ages. So the youngest among them, those people who would be able to get the full benefit from meeting Jesus Christ and yet... Uh, and, that, and, and then be the, as young as possible so that they could live, that first generation you would consider had probably died out by around A.D. 100 or maybe even 120. But by that point, uh, an eight-year-old at the time of Jesus would be well into his 90s or his or her 90s. So this generation is dying out over the first 20 years of the second century A.D., and it is when they die out that the Nephite society begins its decline. So really, uh, the question is not uh, how did they last until the fourth generation, but how could a society last beyond the first generation? Now, uh, if you read this, right, obviously there are a lot of believers and there is a lot of faithfulness. And there are plenty of families and individuals and even probably the bulk of society that remains faithful into the second generation or the third generation. But the decline begins when that first generation dies off and those people who are eyewitnesses to Christ and those people who heard from them immediately thereafter and had that witness around that time. When those people die off, then the society begins to decline. My guess is that the people who are physically present with Jesus, it, were, it was their descendants who were most likely to keep the faith and their descendants in the third generation who were most likely to still be faithful. So the closer you got to this temple experience in Bountiful, uh, the longer this, this experience would have an effect on your descendants. And that is simple logic. I don't know that it's true. The Book of Mormon doesn't report that. But think about uh, the more deeply you're converted, the more the harder you're going to work to build up the faith of your children. The more things you're going to be able to think of that you might, the more obstacles to their faith that you might proactively go out and uh, help them to fortify themselves against, right? So the harder you're going to work to see that your, your kids take their conversion into the next generation and so forth, uh, the more deeply you were converted originally. And I believe that those people who were present to see Jesus Christ teach them would have been the most deeply converted. So that, that gives rise to a couple of questions. Number one, how is it that our own society has lasted as long as it has? We've gone well over 200 years in what you might call modern Christian society. 
Uh, I'm thinking specifically of my own nation, and you can think, if you're not in the United States or Canada, you can think about where you're at. How long has your society had religious freedom? How long has your society been one where uh, the worship of God could rule unrestrained? And if that's the case, how is it possible that we, having not had uh, a manifestation of God to a large number of people, could have lasted longer than these people in Third Nephi? Again, it's a question without a perfect answer. So any answers would just be speculating, but uh, I welcome your, your speculations on this, on this question. But um, my own speculation is that we have such a long... First of all, Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago, and we have this long history of the, the philosophy of Jesus Christ being slowly adopted into mainstream thought and eventually find, finding its way into codification in the laws of the land. So the common law system that uh, the, all of the British protectorates inherited, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the, this com the system of British common law was heavily influenced by Christianity for centuries. And so therefore, uh, we live in, a, in the United States, we live in a, a society that is governed first and foremost by a, a, a sovereign constitution, an all-governing constitution that has precedence over any other law. And that constitution was based on principles heavily influenced by Christianity. And so because those laws are the foundation of our society, they actually provide a bedrock that it, it's difficult for society to, to disintegrate beyond. Now, I do believe we're doing the best we can to disintegrate that bedrock and, and uh, chop it apart into little bits or make it into powder so that we can uh, dig even deeper. And I think once we do, we're going to discover that uh, we made a mistake. We just chopped away the only solid thing we had to build on. We're, so we're, I think, feverishly engaged in that enterprise right now, at least in the United States. But that doesn't mean that it, that it hasn't been the reason why we've been able to endure this long. In spite of the apostasy of individuals and even large groups of people over, over the decades and centuries of, of what you might call Western civilization's existence, we've been able to maintain this bedrock of Christianity because it's been codified into our laws. And so I'm speaking now about Western civilization, but there are plenty of other uh, examples of civilizations that have endured a long time. So uh, it's an interesting question to think about. Why has your particular, uh, if you don't share my own background, why has your particular civilization endured the way it has? And I believe that's why it's possible for us to have endured longer than those in 4th Nephi. It was 200 years, and then they began a serious decline. So the first generation died out, you know, 70 years later. Then their children and grandchildren, once their grandchildren were really passing along, that was when, you know, you might think of it as uh, the time when, the, what was the popular motto in the 1960s? Don't trust anyone over 30 years of age, right? That was... Don't trust anyone over 30 because they're all, all adults are lying to you, basically. It was this wholesale refutation of established wisdom. Nobody who's, nobody who's old enough to have any sort of link to the past 
it has a, has managed to avoid corruption. That was the common belief at the time. And so we, the younger people, people who are younger than 30, we have to make all the decisions. We have to throw out morality that existed before then. Um, I'm not saying this is what the Nephites are going through. I'm pointing out the fact that there are these moments in history when one generation to the next, it seems like the entirety of moral structure and and this kind of social contract is abrogated and it's thrown out in its almost in its entirety. And whether it whether it looked similar to uh, the United States of the 1960s or whether it looked different, it was a similar event. From one generation to the next, they threw out the social contract. They stopped having all things in common, which is a very, very fragile part of that contract, right? As soon as one person starts keeping what he has made to himself, then other people are going to follow suit. And so it has to be really, really close to unanimous that everyone wants to have all things in common for it to work. And, and at the same time, the people who are least able to work have to be trying. And uh, people have to be forgiving of each other when someone else isn't trying or when they can't produce as much. We all have to be forgiving of each other. And I'm explaining this economic system because eventually we're all going to live under it. And I'm hoping that when that day comes, we can have a better understanding of how it works than the early saints did because they failed in their efforts to implement that kind of society. So one day, I hope we can succeed, and that will depend on, uh, among other things, our level of unselfishness and humility. So that being said, we, we get past the dramatically, quote-unquote, boring time, this 200 years of peace, and it's skipped over relatively quickly. And uh, again, it's not boring for the people who lived it. They lived wonderful lives. It's just boring from a fictional standpoint if you're reading a story. Uh, or I shouldn't say fictional, but it's from a storytelling standpoint, whether it's fictional or non-fictional, it's less interesting, it's less entertaining to read about people who did everything right. There's not much to say once you describe the things they got right, uh, then all of them did it in the same way. So we get through that relatively quickly because there's not much to talk about. And then uh, things get interesting again because the people start declining again. So now if we back up, and let's say that we were examining these verses with a magnifying glass, let's pretend that we're going to get on an airplane and go up and take a, a broad view of what we've been talking about over the entire book of Third Nephi, but especially in these last chapters. You know, Mormon pointed out the woes. This is how to avoid societal decline and collapse. I'm going to, I'm going to show you woe unto uh, these people and those people who, who commit these sins. We cannot prevent these attributes from existing in our society. Uh, the, the, the path of wisdom is not to attempt to change society to be perfect. This is a mistake that is commonly made among believers. This is how Satan gets believers, I, I believe, in many cases to leave the path, which is to show them, look, your society is departing from what's right. You need to fix it. You need to go out and get everyone else to see things the way that you do. And, there, and therefore, you can bring your society back into line with what God wanted of all of you. And I believe that what God would want us to do is to f take all of these lessons and look at ourselves. Uh, it's actually quite rare that someone has enough influence. And I'm not saying this wouldn't be a good thing for somebody to have enough influence to actually change society for the better because they understand 
the uh, these these lessons so deeply. They're a, they're so able to apply them in their own lives that they can have an influence over others and become a great moral teacher. That is obviously a wonderful thing when it happens, but I don't believe it describes the vast majority of humanity. What mo- the situation that most of us are in is that we can, if we are really in tune with the spirit and really willing to be humble, the the best we can hope for, and it is a very good state to be in, the best we can hope for is to be able to learn these lessons and look and have them help us look at our own lives and our own hearts and say, uh, this pride, for example, that came upon the Nephites, do I have evidence of it in my own heart in my, and in my own mind? This righteousness that they evinced for this extended period, how have I done that? And when I have succeeded in doing that, what was it that helped me to be able to do it? When I have shown humility before God, how did I do that? How can I get back to that place again? This is the lesson I believe that the Book of Mormon would have us learn first before we try to fix society and fix the world, that we should fix our own hearts, that we should take all these woes and say, do they apply to me personally? Not do they apply to the other people in my society? How can I look at other people and have uh, and use the Book of Mormon as a guideline to judge them with. But how can I use the Book of Mormon as an instruction manual in how to do my own self-improvement? And this, I believe, is why Jesus said to the disciples, you have to take upon you the name of Christ. This is why Mormon made a big deal about pronouncing his woes at the end of the book of 3 Nephi. And this is why we have the story of the faithful and then unfaithful members of this church of Christ who eventually disintegrated once again into tribalism and selfishness and pride. It's because we are meant to take these lessons and apply them individually. And there will be those, and hopefully we will recognize them. We are in a church that has a number of them. There will be those who can become moral teachers because they have internalized these lessons. But for the most part, the the important work is done on an individual level and each of us has to do it. We cannot escape that we must learn from the Book of Mormon and apply these lessons into our own hearts. And I hope that we will all be able to do that with these chapters and the ones we'll discover next week. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.